All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Hello, Pod Save the World fans. It is Tommy Vitor broadcasting live to you. Well, not live taped from the swamp. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm at the United States Institute of Peace. We are adjacent to the State Department. I'm looking down over a whole bunch of monuments and memorials that I will not list out. But uh, it's good to be back in town. I'm here to talk with former Ambassador Johnny Carson, who is uh, an Africa expert who served in the Foreign Service for 37 years. We talked about what has been happening in Zimbabwe with the coup that finally took down Robert Mugabe. We talked about recent elections and political turmoil in Kenya. And we talked about why administration after administration fails to focus on Africa when it is, in fact, an entire continent with huge equities for the United States. Ambassador Carson met Robert Mugabe back in 1974 when he was still just a guerrilla fighter. So he has an incredible perspective on who he is, and how he became the tyrant that we know today. So I think you will really enjoy the conversation. And by the way, if you hear some clicks, there was a former White House photographer in here taking some photos of Ambassador Carson. So uh, that's what you're hearing. Thanks for tuning in. I am honored to be here today at the beautiful uh, United States Institute of Peace building with Ambassador Johnny Carson. Uh, Ambassador Carson served in the Foreign Service for 37 years going to name a few of your roles because I don't think we have time to list them all. Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of African Affairs, National Intelligence Officer for Africa at the National Intelligence Council, Vice President of the National Defense University, Ambassador to Kenya, Ambassador to Zimbabwe, Ambassador to Uganda, served in Portugal, Botswana, Mozambique, Nigeria, and the Peace Corps. So there is no one better (laughs) to talk about the issues I was hoping to talk about today in Zimbabwe and Kenya. Thank you so much for doing the show. Tommy, thanks to be with you again. My first question is, you know, who is Robert Mugabe? How did he come to power and keep it for 37 years in a region where sometimes you see leaders have shorter reigns? Robert Mugabe uh, is the George Washington of Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe gained its independence in uh, 1980 after a prolonged guerrilla struggle, which Robert Mugabe led. Prior to independence, uh, Mugabe spent over a decade and a half uh, in jail Hmm. for resisting white colonial rule uh, in then uh, southern Rhodesia. He was uh, released uh, in the mid-1970s, around 1975, early 1976, and he took over uh, the ZANU political uh, organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Zimbabwean African National Union. Mm -hmm. Uh, He uh, created the political structure 
and he created uh, the guerrilla movement, which ultimately brought down the Smith regime in uh, 1979 and 80. He was initially uh, the prime minister of the country, and as a result of constitutional changes, became president. Robert Mugabe, for those uh, who uh, have never met him, is an extremely articulate man, very polished, very disciplined, very uh, resolute, very focused, very determined, and a man who is capable of manipulating other people to do uh, some of the most heinous things uh, that you can imagine. Robert uh, Mugabe uh, is a man of steel and willing to use that steel against his political opponents, but he's also very articulate. He built uh, the uh, ZANU political party, and he made ZANLA, the military wing, which is now uh, the backbone of the Zimbabwean army, subservient to the, to the party. Mm-hmm. Uh, an extraordinary man. I met him first in 1976, shortly after he was released uh, from prison. At the time, I was serving uh, as the deputy chief of mission uh, at the U.S. Embassy in Maputo, Mozambique. We had been trying for weeks and months uh, to get an opportunity to meet him. He had been out of jail for approximately a year, and he was in northern uh, Mozambique where he was with the fighters who were fighting against uh, Zimbabwe. I traveled to northern Mozambique with a person I later worked for and admired, Stephen Solars, congressman from Brooklyn, New York. And Steve Solars had been pressing the embassy to get a meeting. We finally got that meeting. I traveled with Steve Solars up to a place called Kilimani in uh, northern Mozambique. Four-seater airplane, no radar. We followed the coastline. Two South African pilots, (laughs) white. We flew during the early hours to uh, maximize our time on the ground. Three hours up. Uh, landed at an abandoned airstrip, and I uh, met Mugabe that day along with uh, two other uh, people who later became famous uh, as well. Was uh, this when you were working in, in the House I, African I, I later worked for Steve Solars okay. because after that trip, uh, we uh, had and found a kindred spirit in one another. Uh-huh. And later, uh, yes, uh, he uh, uh, asked... Uh, the Department of State uh, some several years later if I could come and work for him when he became chairman of the subcommittee on Africa, which, yeah. I, which I did. Uh, I greatly admire Steve Solars, but uh, that was our meeting with uh, Robert Mugabe. Uh, the contents of that meeting uh, are widely known to anybody who uh, knows how things are disseminated these days. <laughs> so I won't tell you what I said about him. It could be easily found. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when do you think he transformed from this freedom fighter, this George Washington figure, to a much more dark, tyrannical figure? I mean, when was that change? Or do you have a sense of what changed over time? Robert Mugabe uh, never changed. Uh, our perceptions and our understanding of who Robert Mugabe actually was became more in focused as the context and events around him change. Okay. Robert Mugabe was always uh, a disciplined, focused, resolute, 
person who was uh, uh, a strong uh, socialist, if not, uh, in fact, even further leaning uh, than that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Robert Mugabe uh, never imposed a one-party political system in uh, Zimbabwe in the 1980s and 1990s. But he sought to do so, and people mm -hmm. sought to help him do it. But there were a number of uh, strong democratic forces inside his own party among individuals who thought they could one day succeed to the presidency, mm -hmm. who uh, kept him on the straight and narrow. Mm -hmm. He's always been uh, an authoritarian figure. He's always uh, been uh, a disciplined figure. Uh, he's always uh, been extremely focused, and he's always believed in uh, control uh, of the things around him. Mm -hmm. What brought things to an end uh, was corruption, okay. like it does in many places around Africa. In 1997, 98, uh, just as I was leaving uh, Zimbabwe as ambassador, the uh, Herald newspaper of Zimbabwe, as well as several other smaller newspapers, began to run a number of exposés about uh, the uh, Zimbabwean War Veterans Pension Fund. Hmm. After 1980, uh, the government had set up a uh, pension fund for those uh, individuals who had actually fought in ZANU and ZAPU uh, to bring about the country's uh, independence. The uh, Herald uh, investigative reporters discovered uh, that these funds uh, had been misappropriated hmm. and embezzled and that the pension fund uh, had virtually run out of money. And they asked, why was this happening if, in fact, the government had uh, put ample funds into the pension uh, benefit plan? Was the money gone? And they discovered uh, that members of uh, Mugabe's cabinet, uh, senior uh, members uh, of their family, wives and children, many of them who had been uh, overseas, uh, studying and out of the country and never involved in the fighting, had received large payments mm -hmm. from the fund. Mm -hmm. And it set off a scandal. And uh, the opposition uh, and others pointed to the fact that this was uh, an increasingly corrupt government and that individuals inside that government were stealing funds uh, that should have gone to the war veterans. Mm -hmm. Mugabe then in reaction to the protests uh, on the street uh, by uh, individuals uh, working with the veterans, uh, started uh, to take over and uh, take over white land-owned uh, farms. Uh, and it began the, the confiscation of white-owned farms. And uh, when that happened, uh, the farming sector, which was one of the country's strongest, uh, started to decline. Uh, economic confidence in the country uh, started to uh, disappear, mm -hmm. production uh, declined, uh, and uh, the economy started to begin to sink into a uh, 
depression, which led to uh, high inflation around 2005, 2006, where there were trillion percent inflation mm -hmm. in the country and where the country's uh, uh, money lost all of its value. Yeah. But it was corruption that killed it. So fast forwarding a little bit. So recently, Mugabe fired his vice president and seemingly in the wake of that decision, the army took control in a military coup. But he didn't formally resign until uh, yesterday, Tuesday. We're recording this on Wednesday. And he didn't go easily. Uh, as you said, he's a tough customer. Why do you think the military uh, and his own political party finally decided to move on him? What do you think was the tipping point? The dismissal of Vice President uh, Emerson uh, Manangagwa around uh, November 6-7 when he was pushed out. Mm -hmm. It is important to uh, remember and think about this not so much uh, as a uh, political coup d'etat uh, against Robert Mugabe or uh, against uh, the uh, political party that he has been associated with, ZANU-PF, what this was is a military coup or a military intervention against Robert Mugabe's wife, <laughs> Grace Mugabe, a 52-year-old uh, politically ambitious woman who thought that she could succeed her husband uh, when he died or when he stepped aside. Mm -hmm. Robert Mugabe is gone. One of Africa's real aging tyrants has been pushed off the political stage. But none of the instruments or institutions that he created over the last 37 years which kept him in power, mm -hmm. have in any way changed or been altered. Mm -hmm. The okay. man who succeeds him, Emerson Monongagwa, who is supposed to be sworn in on Friday, is a political clone of Robert Mugabe. He is a 75-year-old version of the 93-year-old Robert Mugabe. And the instruments that he inherits to run the country with will, in fact, be the ZANU-PF political party that Robert Mugabe created. Mm -hmm. And it will be backed up and supported by the Zimbabwean military, which is an outgrowth of ZANLA, which was created by Robert Mugabe. So it sounds like there's some good news, which was he wasn't able to install his wife but I feel like I've seen a lot of folks on Twitter and the news sort of cheering the coup almost. And Premature. Premature. Coups, though, I mean, I think the history of coups or the history of violent or fast political changes can be more instability, more bloodshed. Do you think that's where this is going? Is there any chance you think things could improve for the people in Zimbabwe? They could. Okay. They could. I know out there that there are large numbers of Zimbabweans who uh, want to believe that the uh, downfall of Robert Mugabe will usher in 
the political and economic reforms that they have long sought. Mm -hmm. And there are large numbers of people in the international community who recognize the enormous potential that Zimbabwe has always had, right. who also believe that this is a beginning point of change. Mm -hmm. But it is premature at this point to say uh, that the aspirations and the hopes that they have are going to be borne out. Because as I say, right now, Emerson Manangagwa uh, is a man uh, who is more uh, like Robert Mugabe than, than not. And uh, the instruments and structure that created uh, Mugabe are still in place. The other thing that uh, is uh, possible here is that we uh, can possibly see a continuation of the uh, autocratic dominance of the ZANU-PF political party, uh, a strong grip on the instruments of government by this group, but in fact begin to see some opening on the economic side. It is possible that uh, Emerson Monongagua may uh, open up uh, the country. There have there has been discussion that he would likely uh, invite back some of the white farmers uh, who lost uh, their land mm -hmm. and create a more open business uh, and commercial environment for businesses uh, that want to invest. Uh, Zimbabwe uh, has enormous upside uh, potential. Yeah. Uh, as a country, it has every one of the elements that is required for uh, strong, sustained development. And so he may do that. And if he does open up the economy, uh, there is some hope that the country's bleak uh, economic circumstances uh, could change. Mm -hmm. This is, however, a time in which the international community should seek to actively re-engage in Zimbabwe to encourage Emerson Manangagwa and those around him uh, not only to open up the economy, but open up the political space mm -hmm. for uh, NGOs uh, and uh, other democratic mm -hmm. uh, opposition groups. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. 
Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. I want to turn to Kenya. Kenya has also been dealing with a, a whole series of contested elections and, and political turmoil that results from them. We could probably start this conversation as far back as 2007, but more recently, there were two presidential elections this year alone that were reviewed by the Supreme Court. Uh, the first election in August was nullified because of irregularities that indicated efforts to steal votes. In my mind, you know, that is a huge problem, but the good thing is the, the Supreme Court threw out those results. But it seems like the bigger challenge is that in this instance, the international community is really messed up by leaping to certify the elections too quickly, pushing Kenyans to accept the outcome. Secretary Kerry, who I greatly admire, praised the Kenyan Electoral Commission for having done an extraordinary job and having a free, fair, and credible election, and then urged the opposition to get over it and move on, and then the results were thrown out. Uh, now, Kenyatta was elected in the second, in the do-over election. But I guess I'm wondering, is how did the international community get this so wrong? And are there consequences and costs to these mistakes? I would say that the international community did not get it wrong. Okay. And uh, that the uh, international community uh, that uh, is a part of the larger democratic community uh, that believes in strong democratic uh, institutions, mm -hmm. uh, independent judiciaries, which we'll talk about, sure. independent legislatures and co-equal branches of government, and who fundamentally believe uh, that uh, people in democratic societies have a right to select uh, their uh, leaders, I think they didn't get it wrong uh, in, the, in the sense. I think it's not to say there weren't some missteps in Kenya mm -hmm. among politicians and among some of the organizations that manage elections, okay. but there may have been some small missteps in the international community. But I will strongly endorse and continue to strongly endorse in many parts of the world, and especially in Africa, the need for observation of elections. Absolutely. First and foremost by local observers, but secondarily by international observers. Mm -hmm. Because international observers help to legitimate outcomes, help to provide public uh, space for local uh, observation, sure. uh, eliminate uh, the uh, kinds of uh, small, petty 
ballot boxing stuffing, intimidation of voters, and manipulation of counts that used to go on. Right. So observation, both domestic and international, continue to have importance. Kenya and what was happening uh, there. And I think uh, in looking at this election, uh, you have to think of what you referred to uh, in the context of 2007. Right. In December of 2007, there was uh, an election in Kenya. It was a highly contested uh, (laughs) election. And the uh, outcome uh, of that uh, election uh, set off uh, enormous uh, violence. Some 1,600 people were killed. uh, Hundreds of thousands uh, were injured. And uh, Kenya literally without uh, the intervention of then uh, Kofi Annan, the former secretary general, was on the verge of a civil war. The contest uh, then was uh, between uh, Rilo Denga, the candidate who has now lost three times in a row, right. uh, and Mwai Kabaki, the president who won in 2007. Uh, Although it is uh, highly disputed, I believe uh, in that 2007 uh, election uh, that uh, Rilo Odenga actually won. Hmm. There are scholars uh, out there, and I talk to them in this town, and I talk to them overseas, say that it's it's not the case. But I remember uh, following this election quite closely from the perch in which I was sitting at the time. And uh, it looked as though uh, Rilo Dinga had won before the count stopped, became more opaque, mm-hmm. and before the election commissioner and commission could uh, explain what the hell was happening. <laughs> yeah. And in an instant, I remember sending a little note to our then ambassador uh, out there and saying, please congratulate uh, Rilo Denga and his uh, wife Ida on an election victory Hmm. well won. The next day I woke up to find out that the count had stopped, Hmm. that no one could say what was happening. The election was now in dispute. Later that Saturday evening, again, I look to see what is happening, and they say Kabaki has won, Hmm. and the next morning, early Sunday morning, he was sworn in as president. (laughs) Two weeks later, the country uh, was engulfed in conflict, and it lasted for five, six weeks as people and communities started to move from east to west to align themselves with their ethnic communities. And as uh, commerce stopped, uh, it was a shame. Now, fast forward. No doubt that Rilo Dinga's run in two more uh, uh, elections, 2011 uh, and 2015. Uh, I think uh, in each of these instances, people have sought to improve uh, among other things, the Constitution, right. the way elections have been run and held, and uh, put in place uh, mechanisms to de- decrease the level of, of potential for conflict. Uh, 
in this election, I think people uh, were looking and saying, let us find a way. Let us find a way to ensure a transparent uh, election, election that is well-managed, well-run, transparent, uh, and uh, that is creditable. The election commission in, in Kenya had an enormous job. They had an enormous job. They were running uh, an electronic election where there was digital verification of, of, of registration of, of individual right. voters and transmission uh, electronically of the, uh, of the ballots. But this is one of the most complex elections ever held uh, in Africa, if not in the world, because uh, there were six different ballots, at, at least, uh, that everyone had to deal with president and vice president at the national level, legislative elections at the national level, uh, gubernatorial or provincial governors or provincial governors at that level, legislatures at the uh, provincial level, and municipal governor, municipal mayors, including in places like Nairobi, Mombasa, Kasumu, and other major, major cities. Major elections in major cities. This was a, a, a huge election. Countries with large populations, India, Nigeria, don't try to run elections like this. Mm -hmm. We don't try to run <laughs> elections like this. I wouldn't say we've perfected vote counting. Uh, we haven't perfected <laughs> vote counting, but you know, we have it broken down and staggered over right. uh, two and six-year periods, gubernatorial elections, right. you know, or frequently not held when we have national elections and presidential elections. We just had that in Virginia. No one would try and do it. Right. And... It was being done with an election commission that had only been in office uh, for about six or seven months. Only six and seven months. Hmm. Had a staggering job. And yeah. more than that, six and seven months, and probably only two of the election commissioners really had any prior experience in running an election. So it's very, very complicated. The reality is, is that uh, in the final vote tabulations in the first round of this election, there were not the electronic verifications right. of some of the vote tabulations. And uh, the opposition party led by Rilo Odinga challenged the legitimacy of the election based on uh, administrative and procedures that were not followed and because electronic tabulation sheets did not, in fact, come in and follow the paper sheets. Right. The court said uh, bravely and had a right to say that uh, all of the procedures were not followed. We want a review of this case, and they decided on a uh, rerun. The court never questioned the vote count and tabulation, the judges said that the process and procedures were wrong. Right. <laughs> so to that point, I mean, I was wondering, you know, we talked a lot about Mugabe and Zimbabwe. We talked about the political instability as a result of these elections and, and protracted electoral processes in Kenya. Is it possible to quantify the cost of that political instability to the Kenyan people or, or to the people in Zimbabwe? Like, is there a way to understand the macro cost of, of bad or failed leadership in countries that are have enormous potential? 
And the answer is yes. And I think there are probably a number of ways to do it that are fairly evident. When uh, there is political instability, when there is civil uh, conflict, uh, when there is ethnic and regional strife that grows out of these conflicts, it has a a dramatic uh, impact on the economy of a country, Mm -hmm. uh, the image uh, of a country, and uh, its environment uh, to attract both domestic and international investment. It has the capacity to slow down trade, interrupt trade, and to generate uh, the kind of uh, economic backlash that has uh, consequences of a measurable impact and consequences that linger long after the problem has been resolved. Mm -hmm. Kenya, for example, and this is one of the reasons why 07 and 108. Kenya is a a relatively modest-sized state. But Kenya uh, is, in fact, the most important country in uh, East Africa uh, and East Africa and the Horn. It has been a longstanding friend uh, of the United States. But uh, Kenya is the economic keystone for Mm -hmm. the entire region. The port of Mombasa serves not only Kenya, but it serves southern Sudan, It serves Uganda, it serves Rwanda, it serves Burundi, it serves uh, the the northwest corner of of Tanzania. And it is relevant in importance even in the deepest parts of the Congo. Kisangani, uh, the bend in the river Mm -hmm. in uh, the uh, eastern part of the Congo, looks more to uh, Nairobi in the east than it does to Kinshasa in the west. All of the trade goes through there, oil, trucks, railroads. And so when Kenya uh, is uh, economically disturbed by political upheavals, it means the ripple effect goes out through the region. But it's not only transportation, it is also finance and and banking service because they are the key bankers uh, throughout the region. Communication, they are the key there. They're the key agricultural uh, producer in uh, the region as well. Mm -hmm. And they are the center of of a great deal of of economic vitality, not only in that country, but rippling out uh, into the region. Mm -hmm. They're also, uh, and have been for many years, our most important security partner. And also the most important security partner in the region uh, for the British The British, since the end of the Second World War, uh, have always used Kenya as their uh, warm weather training ground for all of their troops. And, of course, we have had uh, an unbroken relationship with that country since 1963. And after the bombing of our embassies in 1998, our security collaboration has increased uh, quite significantly. And we, too, uh, have uh, a strong security uh, relationship. Everything that we've done in that region, whether it's responding to the Rwandan genocide of 1994, provide Restore Hope in Somalia back in 89-90, provide uh, refugee assistance in uh, southern Sudan, those have all been built on the back of Kenya. Mm -hmm. The air bridge into uh, Rwanda 
was Kenyan. The air bridge into and ship shipbuilding bridge into Somalia was Kenya. And our ability to get into southern Sudan uh, when it was in conflict uh, made uh, an airport that nobody even knows about and can pronounce, Lokichokio, one of the most significant airports in Africa because we were flying in uh, tons and tons of uh, relief materials. Lokichokio on an average day looked like an aircraft carrier uh, somewhere in the South Pacific uh, fighting in the Battle of Midway. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Every president comes in and tries his hand at Middle East peace, or they give big speeches and fret about China, and they talk tough about trade relations in the military. And it feels like every president, even the best intentioned, ends up treating an entire continent without the mind share and economic investment that it deserves or really warrants for our security needs. Why do you think that happens, and how do we right-size the focus of the United States government towards an entire continent. Long overdue. (laughs) (laughs) Long overdue. Africa is increasingly important, uh, not only to the United States, uh, but to the global community. And if we continue to uh, place uh, Africa and the concerns and interests of Africa on the back burner, Ultimately, uh, we will be the losers. We need to uh, work more uh, actively and in partnership uh, with uh, African countries, all of them uh, and some of them more than others, 54 countries out on the continent. We're uh, increasingly aware that uh, things uh, that happen in Africa – can have an extraordinarily negative impact in perception and reality on the global community. And that 
their security concerns are a part of our global architecture for security. And I'm not just talking about kinetic military, right. not just fighting al-Shabaab or fighting AQIE or AQIM or uh, any of the other uh, groups that are out there. But here I'm talking in this instance that we need to be partners in the area of, uh, of public health in helping to uh, ensure uh, that the threat of Ebola in uh, Liberia and Sierra Leone doesn't become a global threat yeah. or a threat to the health of the United Remember States. Remember Ebola, everyone listening. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Ebola is uh, just one of uh, some 12 hemorrhagic fevers that exist out there uh, that could easily be uh, transmitted. Working with uh, Africa to deal with health pandemics uh, that can move as swiftly as an airplane taking one sick passenger to an unknowing sick passenger to another country. We need to be working there. But we also need to be working with Africa on issues uh, of human trafficking, small arms movements, mm-hmm. illegal drug uh, movements, uh, cocaine and, and heroin, which, uh, which can move through Africa into Europe and back and, and into back into the Americas, including the United States because of weak uh, security forces on the ground in Africa. We need to be working with Africa with uh, respect to issues of, uh, of climate change. So all of these are, are, are out there, but we should also recognize the uh, potential that Africa uh, has. And this is demonstrated uh, by the uh, demographics that are out there. Africa is the youngest continent in the world in terms of age. It is also the fastest growing continent in terms of population growth. Today, Africa... And the 54 countries constitute 1.1 billion people. Uh, By 2050, uh, that number uh, will be up to 2.2 billion people. To give you some micro uh, indicators of what I'm talking about or what we're talking about, Nigeria today has approximately 185 million people. It is the largest country by population in Africa. It is uh, the seventh largest country in the world by population. It is the sixth largest Muslim country in the world by population. Its Muslim population is larger than all of Egypt's Muslim population. Its Muslim population is substantially larger than any Arab-speaking state in the Middle East. Hmm. Uh, in terms of population. But yet, Nigeria is growing more rapidly than all of Western Europe. Wow. On a day-to-day basis, every 24 hours, there are more children born in Nigeria than in all of Western Europe, from Sweden down to Sicily, and from Poland over to Portugal. Uh, This is a huge demographic. And by 2050, looking at the middle range of the Mm -hmm. demographic tables of the UN, Nigeria's population will go from 
185 million to approximately 400 million, and it will move from seven to three in terms of population displacing the United States. We have 325 million people in this country. By 2050, we're expected to have 400 million people. Nigeria will have 400 to 405 million people. That's a very good reason to pay attention. <laughs> and we see this playing out, but in a different kind of a way. We see the movement and exodus of people going from Iraq, uh, Syria, Iran, uh, into uh, Turkey and uh, parts of the Arabian Peninsula and going across to some of the, the Greek islands uh, out there in order to get into Italy and to Greece. Uh, we see them moving into uh, the Greek islands. What we are now starting to see a little bit is the enormous movement of Africans across the Sahara uh, into Libya and other places to get to them. And if you look at what's been happening uh, off the coast of Italy and uh, Lampedusa, places like that, you see the enormous numbers of people who are uh, on the move uh, today mm -hmm. uh, from Africa looking for better opportunity, looking for jobs, looking for stability, looking for peace, but looking for a better way to, to, mm -hmm. to live. That can be turned into a positive. Right. Uh, Africa has enormous upside potential, enormous upside potential. It needs roads, it needs airports, it needs housing, it needs hospitals, and there's a consumer market out there. But it's also a continent that is still very rich in mineral resources, and uh, with lots and lots of uh, agricultural potential, industrial potential, and uh, investment opportunities. Mm -hmm. We need to uh, rethink it, uh, how we look uh, at uh, Africa, embrace it, partner with it, work with it. The numbers uh, will speak for themselves. And if we uh, don't embrace those numbers in a positive way, those numbers may, in fact, overwhelm us mm -hmm. in a negative way. Right. My last question for you is just one group that you do see very present in some parts of Africa are conservative American Christian groups that seem to be exporting some of our worst cultural and political fights abroad. Uh, in Uganda, you've seen activists stoking anti-LGBT sentiments and laws. Uh, you've seen Americans pushing for restrictions on abortion rights in Kenya in your personal opinion, why are these groups able to gain traction in places like Uganda? What do you make of this effort to, you know, sort of take these conservative laws and uh, fights abroad? I am a, a strong liberal, and uh, I believe in our democratic values and, and principles. We should be uh, exporting uh, those democratic values uh, and principles abroad, and that means freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of religion, uh, freedom to form trade unions, but we should be expanding our freedoms and our liberties for every community in the United States. These are not only communities of color, uh, but these uh, also extend equally to uh, the lesbian and gay and transgender uh, community, their rights should be equal 
to the rights of every other American and every other individual in the world. We shouldn't be exporting things uh, that restrict freedoms, uh, that make people less equal, uh, that make people less tolerant. We should be exporting uh, the values and democratic principles that make us recognize our equality and our shared values. Mm -hmm. And this is where we uh, ought to be. This is the space uh, that we should occupy. And I would uh, say the commitment should be towards advocating and promoting and enhancing the fundamental democratic values that we have, including tolerance, including respect for individual rights and religious freedoms, wherever they are. Ambassador Carson, people who listen to this show have heard me complain a lot about efforts by uh, the Trump administration and Secretary Tillerson to to gut the State Department, to cut senior foreign service positions. And I just wanted to point out that the types of men and women who are retiring are the types of men and women who are on uh, rickety airplanes in 1974, going to <laughs> runways in the middle of nowhere to meet Robert Mugabe for the first time <laughs> to report intelligence over the course of 37 years. That is critical to our understanding. So I hope we will uh, remember to appreciate and revere those individuals as much as we do uh, the U.S. military and other institutions in this country that uh, deserve our respect. So thank you for doing the show. Thank you for your service. And uh, it was an honor and a pleasure to be here. Tommy, thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for enjoying Pod Save the World during your post-Thanksgiving food coma. Appreciate you tuning in. If you want to see more stuff, including photos of my dog, go to the Pod Save the World Facebook page or follow me on Twitter at TVTOR08. In this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.